This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. I'm Roxy Williams. Today we'll be reading from Matthew 5, 33 through 37. If you're using the Pew Bibles, that's page 810. Matthew 5, 33, 37, and in your Pew Bibles, page 810. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. I pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your word, and thanks that you are a promise-keeping God. Thanks that you are true, that you have integrity, that you do what you say. And in the middle of that is this mercy. You promise to forgive sins. You promise to show mercy. You promise to heal and to restore. You are already doing that, and you promise more of that. So as we sit in this in-between stage of you coming to make all things new, and there still being more restoration and renewal, we ask for your help. We pray you'd make us the kind of people that trust you, that look to you, that put our hope in you in ways that we can actually have hearts of integrity because we're depending on you, not on ourselves. So God, I pray now as we engage your word that you would speak to us. Would you bring a particular kind of comfort and a kind of conviction that we need this morning? Would you make us a truthful people uh, that believe because our God is true uh, we can we can be truthful. So, so help us now, I pray, to draw us to yourself. Um, and we've gone through kind of a lot of twists and turns this morning already emotionally, so would you settle us around who you are? Would you exalt yourself in ways that draw us to you? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us, uh, my name's Chris. I don't know if I said that or not. Um, I'm glad you guys are here. Hey, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're walking through this sermon that Jesus has for us. Am I turned on? Is it me? Probably helpful if I turn it on. My bad. Hey, that's better. How about that? I was saying something amazing and you missed it. Uh, no. Hey, uh, so we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus's kind of declaration of what the kingdom of God looks like, what it means to trust him, who the kingdom of God is for. And we're in this interesting section where he's said you need a righteousness that exceeds what you can earn on your own. Here we've been wrestling with this verse 5. 20, where he says you need a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, the church, the Pharisees were these first century leaders. They were religious elites. They were the ones who followed down to the letter of the law. So what he's saying is not you have to do better than the best. What he's saying is you need something different than what they have, what they offer. And Jesus is saying he came to fulfill that very thing, which was a changed heart and a renewed heart. And now he's giving us six illustrations of what it looks like. So we've looked at, at anger. We've looked at um, adultery, we've looked at divorce, and now we look at oaths. And 
The connection here is not just vows between divorce and oath. There's something deeper there, and that's something to do with loopholes. Now, let me just tell you something about myself. I have trouble falling asleep sometimes, and so I've tried to learn some tricks. I'll try to pray before I go to bed. I'll try to read before I go to bed. I'll try to dim the lights before I go to bed. I put my screen down into that yellow mode instead of the bright mode. But sometimes none of that works. And so what I found to be helpful is to listen to something that's not very stimulating but is very familiar to me. So my mind will just kind of zone out. So I put down really, really low so I don't bother Adrian and put next to my ear this uh, iPhone. And I normally play a stand-up comedian. One that I'm very familiar with, not one that's like super provocative or um, shady because that won't be helpful. Then I'll like get angry and things like that. So I need one that's like pretty mellow, pretty, pretty mild and some that I'm familiar with. And there's this quirky comedian named James Acaster. Any Netflix folks on that? Hey, I man, it's worth your time. He actually is pretty brilliant and he wrestles with his own faith throughout these four series. So he's pretty, pretty quirky, to be quite honest. But he opens up his first section with this story of loopholes. And I thought about that as I was studying this week, thinking about what's going on in this text. And it really is a text about how our hearts are drawn to loopholes. And James A. Castor, as he talks, he says, you know, everyone's favorite loophole is this classic story. If you were to come across a genie lamp and rub it, of course, you would ask for what? More wishes, right? You get three wishes. And the first loophole you want to engage in is we want more wishes. And then he does this whole thing about, okay, you can't do that. I know that's a classic thing. Everyone gets angry when you ask for that. So the next loophole is to ask for infinite genies. So instead of infinite wishes, you ask for infinite genies. And then he says that takes care of two things, both more wishes and my second wish, which is for more friends, which every time he does that, I giggle just a little bit and I try to keep going back to bed. There's something about this idea of loopholes that uh, I feel like we have a system and a network for that this passage feels far away from us. Like it's not the way that you would engage in loopholes, but it is a thing that defines our hearts where we're constantly trying to manage and leverage. So even this funny thing about more genies or more wishes has implied in it that I need more than what I have. That If I just had something else, then I would be okay. That I'm entitled to something or I'm afraid if I don't get it, then I'm, I'm not going to be okay. So I think those fears and those entitlements actually drive something around these loopholes. And if you take them out of absurd kind of comedic moments and put them into your life, what you realize is we have very sophisticated ways of living where we're constantly leveraging and managing people, leveraging and managing even our own selves, our reputation, our comfort, our power, and we're even trying to leverage God for our own purposes. I think that's what Jesus is getting after here when he talks about oaths. It surely has a lot to do with simply being honest, but it's more than that. It's about this idea that in the kingdom of God, because you trust God, you're near to God, you're not left simply to manage him. Think about the difference between being in an authentic, intimate relationship and being in a relationship where you think somebody is either a commodity that you need or they're trying to use you. You're trying to leverage their power or their approval or their control for your own ends. Think about the way that looks in human terms. And now think about what if you approached God that way? What if there was a difference between an intimate relationship with God where you felt like he was your father, that he loved you, you were secure versus things you had to do to earn his love? And when you performed really well, maybe that slid you over into pride where you thought you were entitled to things. And when it slid you over into shame where you weren't performing well, maybe you thought you had to do something to protect yourself. I think we actually, like in subtle ways and not so subtle ways, live our lives constantly managing everybody, even God, and it's exhausting. And that's the space where Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of God has a solution 
to this. It's not just this endless loop of management, even of God or your religious self. If you trust Jesus for who he is, let him be the king of the universe coming into his kingdom, then you're freed from this endless desire to manage and control and even manipulate. Jesus is saying, I came to actually free you, to give you something deeper than just following religious rules so that God was pleased with you. Because management looks like actually a desire for holiness sometimes, and other times it looks really diabolical where you're actually deceitful. It can have two different expressions, but either one of them, Jesus says, I want to settle your heart and actually remind you of what the kingdom of God is about so that you can move towards God with integrity and wholeness and intimacy. So what he's after is a kind of integrity that's available in the kingdom of God that's about kind of who God is and what he's done for you, which means it's like a a cross-shaped integrity, that your successes are rooted in the grace of God and what he's done for you. Your failures are covered by what Christ has already done for you, so you can actually be whole. You don't have to posture or pretend or hide or live in shame. And man, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be so life-giving to be in relationships where you weren't simply afraid or thought you were superior based on who you were around? When it came to being with God, that you didn't feel like you had to manage him or take something from him or or even protect yourself from him? I think there's spaces here with what's going on with these religious leaders is actually them protecting themselves from God, the very God they needed in ways that they were trying to manage him. So, So I think that near expressions here might feel far away from us, but if we can engage what their problem was that Jesus was addressing, and then we'll ask, how do we share that problem? And then we'll just look at what are Jesus's solution to that. But I want you to have in your mind this idea of loopholes and relationships that are rooted in entitlement and in fear. That's the way I want to engage this text, because I think that's what's going on inside this text. So let's look with me in verse 33 of chapter 5 again. He says this, and again, you've heard that it was said of these of old, that you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So here's the pattern. Remember, you say, you've heard it said, but I tell you, he gives a different way, and then he gives a kingdom fulfillment or a kingdom expression, right? So he starts with what you've heard, and he's not quoting one specific passage. He's actually quoting a couple of different things and pulling them together. So here's a couple of them if you're taking notes. Exodus 20, verse 7 says this, You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. It's one of the big ten. And and for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. To take the Lord's name in vain is not simply cussing. It's to evoke God's authority and presence in your situation to leverage him is what's going on. Leviticus 19, 11, and 12 says this. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So they had this category of not evoking the name of God in false ways that would actually lead towards deceit. It was a kind of lying, a kind of management and manipulation. We weren't meant to swear by God's name falsely. And then Numbers 31 and 2, if you're taking notes, you could write that down. Numbers 31 and 2 says this, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel saying, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord and, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And so God intended his people when they say, hey, I promise in the name of the Lord for that to mean something and to not take that vainly, to not abuse that, to not break that. It was a call towards integrity to, to say, I'm going to do this before the face of God and you can trust me. 
But like most things, they go from that original intent to some sort of strange management. So look at what he's correcting here in verse 34 of chapter 5 of Matthew. He says, But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Rather, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil, he says. All right, so, so the Old Testament says, hey, don't swear falsely, right? Don't just lie. Don't evoke the name of the Lord and lie. But he says, but I'm going to tell you, don't, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven or by earth or, or by Jerusalem. So here's what one scholar says for the sake of time. Let me summarize it this way. What Jesus is forbidding here is in swearing by heaven and earth and Jerusalem, even by one's own head, seems confusing. Why would anybody do that in the first place? People were swearing oaths by these things without using God's name. And on that basis, they were releasing themselves from fulfilling the promise that they had given. Of course, they would argue, had I sworn by God's name to keep my oath, I would have to fulfill it. But the fact that I swore by the earth indicates that my commitment was not an absolute one. Jesus says two things about this, that it's utter hypocrisy and it's deep-seated dishonesty. It's hypocrisy because everything is done in the presence of God. And it's dishonesty because it masquerades as a commitment to truth and to scripture and theology, even quoting the Bible, but it's exactly the opposite. To swear by these things is to give the appearance of a serious commitment, but it also suggests that, that our word actually is not our bond. It's actually a sign that we lack integrity, that one's heart is actually full of duplicity, and Jesus abhors such lack of moral integrity and seriousness. All right, so in a brief way, what he's saying is what they were starting to do is say, okay, I can't swear in the name of the Lord, so I will swear by something that sounds like the name of the Lord, and in invoking that, then you'll have to trust me. And then when I don't come through on that, rather than feeling a ton of shame or you being mad at me, I can say, oh, by the way, I never actually swore by the name of the Lord anyway. I swore by heaven, or I swore by his throne, or I swore by Jerusalem. Therefore, I'm off the hook. Uh, it would feel like you when you made a promise as a kid and then you came back and said, oh, but I have my fingers crossed. It's, it's that idea. You're like, well, I have my arms behind my back and my toes are crossed, my fingers are crossed. And so I didn't actually mean it when I said it. Now, when you cross your fingers, when you're making a promise, it's a declaration that you do not intend to keep that promise. Clear? When someone swore by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem, it's this declaration that you actually can't trust me to leverage up this idea, hey, I'm swearing and you can put your hope in this by evoking something else beyond just your word was the actual sign that you were not a very trustworthy person. It's like when you say, like, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, that whole thing you do on the playground, which is you've probably been seven since you've said that, but, but that's a pretty powerful evoking, right? So, hey, I, kill me if I'm wrong here, but you don't say that because everybody trusts you. They don't come in and go, oh, we trust you, you're doing great. You don't evoke this like cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, ritual, if everybody already trusts. So, so what Jesus is getting at is this religiously sounding framework where they were in loopholes making promises they had no intention to keep. And what was so heinous about it is they were, were doing things in the name of the Lord or religious things or things that sounded like the name of the Lord to actually deceive. And what Jesus is saying is God's kingdom is not a kingdom of loopholes. Because what was happening is they were using these kinds of oaths to actually get out of doing justice, to actually get out of keeping their promises, that they were violating their integrity and hurting people, thinking that they were morally and religiously superior. 
it would be like you saying, well, at least I've never killed anybody. So at least I don't, I don't cheat on my taxes. When do you say that? You say that when you've done something else wrong. When you've had some other breach of integrity is when you kind of evoke this, well, at least I'm not that kind of person. This leveraging of dishonesty. And so just like last week when we looked at another passage about divorce to give us some context, flip over to Matthew 23. It's on page 828 if you're in that pew Bible. He's speaking still to these Pharisees. And listen to what he says. Listen to the way he he describes their oaths and their commitments and the way they have this thing upside down in ways that are actually the opposite of the heart of God. He says this in verse 16 of Matthew 23. Speaking of the same situation, he says, Woe to you blind guides, these Pharisees that he says you have to be more righteous than. Woe to you who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if he swears by the gold on the temple, then he's bound by his oath. Woe to you who are nitpicking the way promises are made. You say the temple is nothing, but if I swear by the gold of it, right? If I didn't have my fingers crossed, then it actually is binding. Verse 17, you blind fools, for which is greater the gold of the temple that has made, or the, or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound to that oath. You blind men. For which is greater the gift of the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, so who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And everyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So in this loophole religion, they were making this bifurcation of their vows and honesty. There were certain kinds of people and situations that you could leverage and manipulate and other places where you, you couldn't. And it seems kind of strange to us, right? Again, you haven't said those things. It's not the way that you manage and manipulate. But if you can step into the idea of making promises in ways that actually control or manage or manipulate, you'll get closer to what Jesus is talking about here. What he's saying is that you don't have to leverage and manage God. You don't have to leverage and manage people. You can actually live a life of integrity. So flip back over with me to Matthew chapter 5. A key question here, is this a prohibition to any sort of promises or oaths? I mean, I did a wedding yesterday, right? They took vows. Does this mean that we shouldn't do that? Because he says, don't take an oath at all. I think what he's actually talking about, though, are these secondary oaths, these kind of tricky, laced, loophole oaths where, where we're designing them and the language around them to be manipulative. He says, don't, don't do that. But man, do say yes and do say no, which is a kind of promise. Even later on in Matthew, Jesus will, under oath in the court of law, he, he will speak and give testimony. We see that God takes oaths by himself in Hebrews chapter 6. We see throughout the New Testament of the followers of Jesus taking things like Nazarite vows and oaths to, to keep themselves in certain spaces. So it's not a, a prohibition to all oaths. It's a prohibition to manipulation. It's a prohibition to loopholes and management, thinking that in that space you can do something with God that would get you some sort of favor, some sort of leverage. We'll get to why that might be in a second, but that's a, the issue that's going on. And he says that, that anything beyond simply yes or no comes from the evil one. So let's just talk about that for a second. Why, why is that? Well, John 8, says that the evil one is the father of lies. So any lie that you're tempted to tell comes from believing something from the father of lies, right? So it's evil to break your promise. It's evil to, to break your word. It's evil to manage and manipulate. 
But if we go to passages like James 4, what we see is that kind of leveraging is actually rooted in arrogance. So, so flip over with me to the book of James. This will be the last place that we flip. So James chapter 4, it's on page 1013 if you're in that pew Bible. And we'll go to verse 13. All right, so James is Jesus' little brother. He heard him teach this, right? There's a couple of spaces here where he, he talks about keeping our promises. But listen to what he says about the future and making promises. This is verse 13 of chapter 4 in James. He says this, Come now you say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right that he should do and doesn't do it, and he fails to do it, for him that is sin. James unpacks this teaching and says, when you make oaths that you can't keep or don't intend to keep, they're rooted in arrogance. And all such boasting, all such arrogance is actually evil. So stop for a second. What's going on here? There is a small step from arrogance to entitlement. And from entitlement to managing and leveraging things that you think you deserve or things you think you need to protect yourself and keep yourself safe. So pride would make you go after things you think you deserve. And shame and fear would make you try to protect yourself things you think you need. And instead, what he says here is, hey, you don't know the future, so would you just simply trust God? He begins to give us this solution in the idea that far from making vows that we don't have to keep or manipulating in loopholes, there's something different in the kingdom of God, and it is a rooted trust in who God is for us so that we can actually, with integrity, look to him to provide for us, which diminishes those temptations for leveraging diminishes that entitlement it diminishes that fear that we need something we don't have therefore we better get after actually managing the people around us what jesus is saying here is that there is a an evilness to this breaking of promises because it's rooted in an arrogance and the father of lies always whispers to us that you deserve more he plays on your pride and then he overwhelms you with shame think back to the garden genesis chapter 3 man and woman are there they're in the presence of god everything is going amazing and here comes this lie that they need more than they have it's a lie of entitlement if you take this fruit you will know more by the way subtext you need to know more you're inadequate right so he appeals to pride and to shame You're not sufficient. You need to know more. And if you just took this, you can have what you're entitled to. Friends, all of our deception is rooted in pride and shame. In that space in the garden, he tempts them with that entitlement. And then we see in the wilderness with Jesus, this same evil one comes, kind of reliving this moment here where Jesus actually conquers the evil one. And he takes half-truths and he tempts Jesus. Hey, doesn't God promise to protect you? Well, then shouldn't you throw yourself off this temple and watch what he does? Doesn't God promise to feed you? Then shouldn't you actually take matters in your own hands and make these stones bread? Doesn't he promise you the whole world? Well, shouldn't you just take matters into your own hands? And it's a temptation to entitlement. Don't you need more than what you have? Should you not wait on the Lord? Shouldn't you actually take matters into your own hands? Can I invite you to consider what's going on when you face moments of dishonesty 
is you think it's up to you. Either you're owed something or you need something, and that sets you up to be dishonest. Just think about that for a moment. Because again, these things, you probably haven't sworn by heaven or earth in like significant ways in a really long time, but the root there is the same for us, right? So the problem that he's addressing is this pride and this shame, this desire for control and this entitlement, right? It's the things that we think we need so that we can have what we think we need. So, so our versions are things like exaggeration, things like not telling all of the truth when we're with people because we know if we leave out part of it, they might actually believe us. But if they knew all of the story, that it would actually change the way they understood the story. So we're tempted not to lie necessarily, but only to tell part of the truth. That sound a little bit familiar, right? Like I'm making an oath, but I'm not really swearing on the Lord. Therefore, it's not quite binding. I didn't lie to you. I only told you part of what you most needed to know. And I controlled the rest of the information. There's a kind of lying that happens when we don't confront people, when we don't speak truth to them. We reduce people down simply to their actions and what they have done. And actually, in that space, we're not being honest to, to say of that person about their value, right? We, we accuse them, slander And gossip, even if it's just in our own minds, our versions of dishonesty, to say about somebody they're reduced down to this act and therefore I can expose or I can use or I can manage or I can manipulate them. Think about the ways you're tempted to posture online. I I love when people do, and maybe this is you, this is not, I didn't look at Instagram this whole week, so this is not about your post. But when people go like, here I am alone, it's my cup of coffee, my Bible, just enjoying some alone time for everyone to see. And you go like, what is, what is that about? Why do we posture in those spaces, right? And not just posture about what I have or what I'm doing, maybe even posture in ways of your language and your um, engagement with people online has this bite that you would never say to somebody face to face, but there's a kind of deception and emboldenedness that happens Online, right? We're tempted to say that we're only joking. They shouldn't be so sensitive. We tend to think that the ends justify the means. Again, we say things like, well, at least I don't fill in the blank, which is this kind of ranking. And we often feel owed to something. Therefore, we think we can take it. Think about in businesses where you've judged the regulations and the rules and the laws that govern your industry to be obscure or out of bounds or irrelevant. Therefore, you're justified in breaking them. Or from that insecure place that you can't survive in this industry unless you break them. Everyone else is dishonest, so you have to be dishonest if you're ever going to engage with them. If you're ever going to make it in this world, right? Either you're better than the rules or you can't survive without breaking the rules. Those are all versions of this kind of loopholeness that kind of leads to entitlement and some sort of fear in our hearts. Okay, so let me ask you this question. What is the lying and the deception in your heart in service of? What motivates you in those subtle, maybe socially acceptable ways of dishonesty and managing and manipulating? Maybe in ways that get you praised at work, maybe in ways that seem shrewd, but but you know they're not honest. What is that dishonesty in service of? What is it trying to protect? What's it trying to get? Is it your reputation? Like if somebody found out that you were different than what they thought you were, you would be ruined and your failures and flaws on display would actually crush you. Or do you lie to protect some sort of comfort? 
that you don't want to be put in a situation that's difficult or you have to say hard things or receive hard things so you round off the edges and you don't tell the truth because that confrontation would be really uncomfortable. Are you protecting your, your identity, the, the, the history, the way people have always seen you, with the, 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 the ways you kind of presented yourself either online or in person? Like what is the lying and the deception in service of? I think it's a, a free question we can ask when we rest our identities in the grace of Jesus and realize he already has everything for us. So now we can take some risk and go, hey, what else am I looking to? So just for your reputation, for an example, what if actually you saw yourself the way the gospel says you are, of someone who's actually broken and in need and sinful, that's the worst thing about you has already been revealed, that actually we're so bad, God himself had to come and die for us, that was our only hope. What if you started there, then whatever else your coworkers or your spouse or your family found out about you, it wouldn't be more than what God has already declared about you. Can you have a, a gospel-formed identity that, that actually settles you in a space where your inadequacies and your flaws are not a threat because you've already declared you were needy and you needed God to come and do something? And the great news is that he's already actually done that, right? So not just the worst thing about you has been said, the best thing about you has been said that you were actually worthy of God coming and sacrificing himself in your place so that you could be rescued and could be made whole. I think the solution to the deception... It's to stop and go, hey, what is this thing in service of? And how does Jesus actually meet that? And all of us are different. I get it, right? So some of the things I'm naming, it's not connecting with you at all. So let me just kind of run through a couple of thoughts, right? So what if you didn't have to always be right? What if your insatiable desire to always be right, because that meant you were safe, what if you didn't have to be right so you could admit when you were wrong or rigid or actually neglected people? What if you didn't have to care for people perfectly to be loved so you could admit when you failed them? What if you didn't have to manage your image and what people thought about you so you could actually show weakness without excuses? What if you didn't have to be unique or maintain some sort of specialness to be loved? You could just be honest about the normal, mundane averageness of you that God still really cares about. What if you don't have to know everything, be on top of everything, all the latest trends? What if you didn't have to know everything so you could admit where you didn't know something and didn't have to exaggerate or posture in a conversation? What if you could move towards discomfort for the sake of loving others? You could actually risk in your relationships them, them be struggling with you because you weren't dependent on their approval for your security. And what if you didn't have to control or protect or defend everything? You could simply trust God. You could let him be the one who actually makes things right. You could look to him to be the one who secures you. In those spaces when we round off the edges, I think it's in service of something, and we do well to ask, hey, what is it that drives me to this entitlement and this here? Because security, I think, is the place that integrity begins. To stop and say, what if I'm already whole? Then I don't have to try to hold something together and patch it a reputation kind of engage in some sort of management, I could actually be settled in who I am. And that security can't be found in our performance. It can't be found in other people's opinions of us. It can't be found in our reputation. It has to be found in what Christ has already done for us. So in that space, Jesus offers, I think, two solutions in this text, right? So, so the issue is this management loophole thing. We, we share that when we try to leverage through entitlement 
or through fear. And I think he gives us the solutions, right? What would you do instead of trying to manage? What would you do instead of trying to to hold everything together? Look with me back in this text. Look in verse 34. It says, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. All right, again, you don't talk that way, but if you stop and say, what this means is that like heaven is where God dwells, and his throne is there, but he's also on earth, he's here, and he's in Jerusalem already. It's a, a way of progressively pulling the concentric circles from heaven to earth to Jerusalem, even down to your own head, to say God already is everywhere. Right? You don't have to pretend or posture because God already sees. If God is everywhere, then, then we see we live in his presence in such a way that we're secure because of what Jesus has done and that erodes the desire or the draw towards posturing because we're already accepted by the one who sees everything most clearly. All right, so, so living in the presence of God is scary if you don't know Jesus, and it's incredibly comforting if you do know him, because it means he already sees you and accepts you. Right? It's, it's this space where we, we understand and God wants us to grow, so seeing our flaws for what they are means we don't have to manage or pretend. So, so uh, growing up playing football, we would do game film, and it's like the most excruciating exercise to watch yourself play and see all of your little mistakes. There's two mindsets. One is, I'm already amazing and have to maintain something and prove that I'm amazing. The other one is, I want to grow and get better. Depending on where you are in that mindset, you watch that game film real differently. One leads towards excuses, blaming somebody else or pretending it's not that bad or just feeling a ton of shame when you blow it. The other one is seeing your mistakes and wanting to grow and learn. What the gospel does for us is lets us be seen for who we really are and not have to defend anything, but actually move towards this idea of growth, of repentance, of owning my dysfunction. Because seeing what the lie is behind the dishonesty should be this liberating activity, not a dis- this like, crushing blow to your ego. Right? If your ego is rested in who Jesus is, then disclosure of places where you're trusting in something else is liberation and freedom, not condemnation. If the whole game is trust Jesus more, then seeing where you need to trust him more leads towards more and more freedom, not a crushing blow of your acceptance and approval and identity. Jesus says, hey, would you live like God is everywhere? Live in the, the presence of God where he already is everywhere. You can't escape him. So it doesn't matter what you say by what you swear on the gold of the altar or the altar, heaven, earth, Jerusalem. He is everywhere. So that means you can't take an oath that he is not present in. Because they were leveraging the Lord's name in a unique way. Like if I didn't say his name, then it doesn't really count. But he is everywhere. So there's nothing that you say that's not in his presence. There's nothing that you do that's not in his presence. And there's massive implications for when we're alone. We feel like nobody's going to see. But avoid that guilt for a moment and see it more as an invitation towards wholeness. There's a security that we have in Jesus that lets us be honest where we struggle, right? Admitting that there are issues in our hearts that cause us to lack integrity actually takes the power out of those things and exposes the lies that we've been believing so that we can be healed. Well, what is this deception in service of? Is it control? Is it approval? Is it your identity? Is it power? Is it comfort? What is the thing that you're longing for that deception is in service of? What if Jesus could meet that? 
And now integrity can be formed because it takes the power out of that lie. When I was uh, kind of early in our careers with church and our kids were little, moms and dads, you know this like witching hour around 5 p.m., maybe 5.15. You get to 5.30, it's pretty hairy. 6 o'clock is really bad. Dad's not home by 6.15. I mean, all hell breaks loose. It is, it is a bad deal. Heads are spinning. People are crying. It's a horrible situation. I'm late most of the time for lots of really noble reasons, I believe, but I am late a lot of the time. When our kids were little and I would say I'd be home at 5 and I'd get home at 6.15, Adrienne got to the space where she began to call me a liar. Not a noble pastor that's sacrificing and serving people with all of his heart and makes him late, but a liar. She actually said, you lack integrity. You said you'd be home at 5 and it's 6.15, you're not here yet. We've worked through it in our marriage. It's like a real, a real moment. But, but in that space, here's this young mom trying to hold the family together, and I'm late. So, so she wasn't saying, hey, I know you were serving and sacrificing all these people. She was on to me, and the way that my behavior was in service of something with my identity. At the risk of being too vulnerable, let me just say this. My insatiable workaholism has a part that I really care about people and want to honor God for sure, but it also has something to do with where I see my value and worth. Like if I do more and provide more, then I'm more loved. It's a baseline lie that I believe. So I will stay late. I'll stay longer thinking I could fix something. Thinking if someone asked me a question, I could spend longer to fix it and serve it. I'll actually then do things throughout the day in ways that set me up where I'm late in the afternoon. I really did have a meeting. I wasn't lying about the meeting. But had I done things earlier in the day the way I was supposed to, rather than trying to engage with people in a way that built my identity, then I wouldn't be quite late. All right, this is a long conversation with me and Adrian. you got like two minutes to wrap a hold of it. But if you could just put your mind around this idea, there are things that I did that made me late that actually were violations of integrity. It's not a violation of integrity if you blow out a tire or if you had a meeting you couldn't escape, but in a repeated pattern where you continue to choose things rather than what you're supposed to be doing out of comfort or you're choosing things out of arrogance thinking your presence here is going to make this thing better or you refuse to stop and just let go and just say I'm going to be done go home and kind of be with my family. All those spaces actually did lack integrity. And here's the amazing thing, to move it away from, I just had this meeting that went long to this thing inside my heart actually started to shape and free me from the power these things had, right? To name them and say, me being late is in service of me building my identity, not just being a thoughtful pastor. There's something deeper down there. There's something actually it's in service of in my dishonesty or my lack of integrity or my lack of wholeness actually is rooted in me needing more than simply saying, hey, I've done all I can do today. I got to get home because that's super, super important. And found myself at 9 a.m. making a decision that would put someone or something above my family by 5 p.m. That's a little bit complicated, but it's a place where me just admitting, hey, I'm not just late because this meeting went long. I'm late because of a handful of decisions that I made that were rooted in this thing I thought I needed. And all that happened in the presence of God, so I don't have to feel condemnation. I could actually trust him for that and look to him in those moments to be for me what I needed rather than to kind of acquire or earn my own reputation or identity. If that's like really complicated, now you pity me in ways you're like, oh man, I don't know. Uh, I want to invite you to go, hey, what is it for you that appears to be noble that might have roots in it that actually are ignoble? What is it that actually might be about comfort or control or approval or power that you could look to Jesus for? And realizing that everything happens in his presence begins to unravel some of the power 
that that thing has over you. So that's the first solution, living like we're in the presence of God because we are and resting in what Christ has done for us in the gospel so that being in his presence isn't this terrifying thing. It's a freeing, liberating thing where we can actually be honest. That's the first thing. The second thing I think has something to do with our lack of control. You see that in verse 36 of this? He says, and don't take an oath by your head for you can't even make one hair white or black. He reminds them that they lack the control to kind of earn their identity or deserve their identity or preserve their identity or build their identity. You lack the ability even to change something as small as a hair on your head. He reminds them of their lack of control to free them from the desire either for entitlement or to scramble to protect themselves so they could actually look to God. Hey, if security is the beginning place of integrity, then resting on what God has done for me frees me to not actually have to manage that right right integrity comes from me not just being careful but me being whole integrity comes from me not just trying to say what the right words it comes from me feeling integrated like i'm already at peace i'm already at rest that i'm looking to god to be the one who's in control of my life and i live in his presence therefore i don't have to be dishonest with you because god already sees and i'm not trying to control anymore my dad used to tell me that if you always tell the truth it's really simple. It's really easy. Once you start to lie, you have to remember who you lied to, about what and when, and keep all of that straight. It gets really, really complicated. There's something beautiful and attractive about integrity, not because it's flattery or a new kind of law, but because it's the kind of wholeness that Jesus offers us in the kingdom of God. There's a kind of wholeness all of us long for that Jesus promises to give us. It starts with him forgiving us of our sins and moves outward into our hearts where it changes the way that we behave so that we can simply be honest like verse 37 says and simply say yes or no. I don't have to leverage. I don't have to move towards arrogance. I don't have to move towards entitlement. Nothing evil has to come from that. I can simply say, man, I mean to do that or no, I can't do that. And because I'm free from the way you're trying to I'm trying to build my identity around what you think, or I'm free from trying to protect myself, then I can actually move towards those spaces with wholeness. So you don't swear by heaven and earth and throne and Jerusalem and all of that, but I think you do struggle with dishonesty and service of your own identity. And this is a call in the kingdom of God to put our identity in Jesus, to live in his presence, and to admit that he's the one who has control over everything. And when we remember that this one that we're looking to for our identity, for the one to have control of our life, is the one who keeps his promises, then it becomes safe for us. This fear we have, if I need more so I can actually take care of myself, if we realize God's the one who keeps his promises, he's the one who who made oaths to come and rescue us, and he kept them through his son Jesus on the cross, he's proven his love for us in that space, then the, the biting fear you have or the the temptation you have that you're on your own, you need to take care of yourself, that begins to erode as well because God has proven himself trustworthy and good. He's made promises to you. He kept them in Christ. Therefore, you can depend on him for everything else you need. And that will lower the temptation for you to posture, lower the temptation for you to be dishonest. It will lower the temptation for you to feel entitled to more than you have or to be afraid of what you don't have. So far from just some random code What Jesus is offering us here is a relationship with himself that would actually heal you and lead towards integrity. And he proved it on the cross, which is why we take communion every week. It's the reminder of how all of this is possible. If all you heard was, you better be more honest, you better try harder to not lie, that will crush you. 
but to hear that Christ actually took the place of you on the cross and died for all of our dishonesty and frees us from the things that lead to dishonesty, it actually now begins to liberate and to free us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, as you're wrestling with me, where are breaches of integrity in my life? What's this lying and service of? Would you start with remembering what Christ has done for you? Let that be a liberating place for you to move forward. So Christians, there's this little cup we have for communion. There's some in the front here. They're in the back of the room as well if you missed them. There's a little wafer that represents the broken body of Jesus and a little bit of juice that represents his shed blood. And that is the way we have hope and we can move towards him. So I want to invite you to take communion with me now. If you're not a follower of Jesus, there's some prayers on your worship guide that will give you some language to pray and ask for him to speak to you. But but Christians, come and trust Christ as you think about what he's done to make us whole. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion, and then we'll sing another song. Jesus, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thanks for your grace. Thank you that you died in our place to make us whole. Thank you that what you've done frees us from needing to pretend or posture or protect ourselves. Thanks that we get to be in your presence in ways that are not under condemnation because of what Christ has done. So would you now speak to my friends who struggle with honesty? And would you speak your truth over them and your promise-keeping power over them even as they taste the reminder through this broken body and shed blood that you uh, did for us on the cross representing communion? Would that taste in their mouth remind them of your goodness? And would you administer to them now in this space? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.